You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Let me ask you a question uh, before we get started here. How are you guys doing? Isn't that a really annoying question? It's like, I don't know. I don't know how I'm doing. As a church planner, I get this question all the time. Like, hey, how's, how's your church doing? I, I don't know. Like, I never know how to answer that question. I usually say something really stupid like, well, we're still there. You know, I mean, of course we're still here. I don't know how to answer that question. One of my favorite seminary professors used to say, I am simultaneously doing very poorly and very well, depending on the subject. And that's probably the most accurate response I've ever heard to that question. With so many factors about what it would mean to do well. I mean, think about it. When I asked you, how are you doing? I mean, all the various things you could have thought about. When you get the question as a Christian, like, how is your walk with God going? There are so many things you could say about what it means to be a good Christian or to have a healthy church, aren't there? I mean, you could talk about sound doctrine. You could talk about repenting of sin, being thankful, having deep relationships, serving one another, helping the poor, giving of your money and your time, giving of your money, uh, bearing fruit in the Spirit, giving of your money. I'm just kidding. There's all kinds of things that you could think about. On top of that, now consider all the complexities of your actual life, like the circumstances and events that you're going through. If you're married, you have marriage issues. That's part of being married. Uh, If you're a parent, you have parenting issues. If you're single, you have singleness, life stage issues. Some of you are dealing with debt. Some of you are dealing with job dissatisfaction or materialism or anxiety or fear or deep pride or anger or secret sins and just on and on and on. Okay, so when you think about all the things you could think about when it comes to being a healthy church and on top of that, all the complexities of your life, how in the world do you begin to answer the question, how am I doing? Well, what I want to contend for today and the next two weeks is that the gospel and only the gospel Uh, has the the scope and the depth to take into account all of those factors and all those circumstances. Only the gospel has the capacity to address every issue and the power to transform every person wherever they are. And so our mission as a church is simple. It is to help each other believe and apply the gospel in every area of life. I want you to know that if we're talking about relationships or money or helping the poor, we're talking about the gospel. Uh, If we're talking about our life stage or internal struggles or ethics, we're talking about the gospel. If we're talking about food or sleep or play, we're talking about the gospel. Because everything about who we are, what we think and feel and do and say, is all connected to our understanding and our experience of the gospel. And you could look at it negatively as well. Even our sin is itself connected to our lack of understanding or experience or unbelief when it comes to the gospel. And so we want to help each other believe the gospel deeply and apply it broadly in every area of life. And to do that, we think about the gospel in three various aspects. I want you to flip over to page four in your liturgy. If you like diagrams, this is for you. Uh, 
Whenever a person or a church is sort of out of step with the gospel, it's usually because they've reduced the gospel to some particular aspect of the whole. And uh, that's how you get in trouble. And so we want to think holistically about the gospel. And here's how we do this. You'll see these three circles uh, drawn on here. These, in our, our way of conceiving the various aspects of the gospel and holding them all together so that we don't drift in any one direction. Let me just review these briefly, and then we're going to dive into these uh, in these next three sermons. At the top, you'll see gospel content, and you'll see underneath that the word learner. In each of these circles, you have kind of the category of the gospel, and then you have connected to it uh, an identity that's true of Christians because of the gospel. And so learner is just another word for disciple. We're thinking about the content of the gospel. We're thinking about the message of the gospel. It's what Kendall said. God saves sinners through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the gospel is something to be heard and to be proclaimed and to be believed. And in connection to who we are as Christians, we are learners and disciples of that message. The gospel is also a community. And so it's not just that God is saving individuals through the message of the gospel. He is saving them into a family or a body. And so you can see the identity word there is family. You read the New Testament And the primary way it speaks about Christians is in family terms. Brothers and sisters, God is our Father, we are children of God. And the way that they treat each other is really like a family treats each other. They're committed to one another. They share their resources with each other as if everything belongs to everybody. They consider each other's needs above their own. I mean, I know that's not how your families work, but it's how families are supposed to work. And that's how it plays out in the New Testament. This final circle is gospel cause. God not only saves people, reconciles people unto himself, saves them into a community, but he commissions and sends that community on mission. And so after Jesus rose from the dead, he called together his disciples, his community, those people who he had drawn to himself with the message of the gospel. And he says, now, all authority has been given to me, and I want you guys to go and make disciples of the nations, teaching them every, to obey everything that I've taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And you pick up in the New Testament and you see not only are these people gathering around the teaching, the content of the apostles, they are scattering, sometimes by persecution, but they are going to the ends of the earth in the early days with the message of the gospel. That's the cause. God is reconciling all things to himself. And the reason we draw them in circles like this, interconnected, is because It's very difficult to talk about one of them without kind of bleeding into the other because the gospel is all of them together. And what a healthy church is or what a healthy Christian is is not in any one of these things. It's that little white circle in the middle. Todd likes to call it the sweet spot. It's when all of these things are are converging and finding expression in your life. That's a healthy Christian and a healthy church. Now, we all tend to identify with one of these circles, Like, you're here because you were drawn to something. You were drawn to the content, or you were drawn to the community, or you were drawn to the cause that we're involved in, or that church planting is about. Uh, It's just how the diversity of the body works. We're all kind of drawn to one of these things. And so, when someone asks you, how are you doing spiritually? How's your walk with God? Or, what do you love about your church? You're probably drawn to that thing. So, if you're a content person, and someone asks you how you're doing, you're just thinking, what have I been learning? Like, have I been reading the Bible lately? If you're a community person and someone says, how are you doing? Like, how's your relationship with God? You're thinking about how you feel in connection to other people. How's your, how are your relationships going? If you're a cause person, you're thinking about the degree to which you're serving others and giving of yourself and helping people. 
And those are all good things, but you can see how you can begin to drift into one particular aspect of the whole and therefore be skewed even in your understanding of the question. And this is easy for a church to do too, or any organization. One of the number one problems in organizations is the tendency to drift. We get stuck, we get distracted, uh, we begin defining success in all the wrong ways, and we just drift from the things that drove us in the beginning. Our church is only four and a half years old, and I can tell you it is so easy to drift. When we began this, we had very impassioned vision for what God was calling us to and very deeply held convictions and values. We still have those things. They're, they're on our website because that's where values belong, is on the website. Isn't it true that it's really easy to look good on paper? Anybody can just write down some values. It's living them out purposefully and with meaning. That's the hard part. So, Across the board, whether it's a church or an organization or your life, the solution to drift is almost always to go back to the center, to to take stock, to get back to like the early days and remember who you are and why you started this thing and what you're about and what you're doing here. That's That's how you solve the drift is you get back to the center. And so that's what we want to do over the next three weeks. We want to get back to the center. We want to talk about what is the DNA of a healthy church or Christian. And to do that, we're going to go back to the early days of Jesus' ministry. This text that you heard read in John 1 is, I think, probably some of the earliest, if not the earliest, encounters that Jesus has uh, with these guys, with the characters in the story. Uh, When you get to look back at the beginning of a movement, you can see in sort of stripped-down form what it's about. And in these encounters, we get to see the kind of environment and the kind of culture and movement that Jesus is shaping. And the phrase that is super helpful in this text is the phrase, come and see, Uh, particularly when we're talking about gospel content. You see it in verse 39 and in verse 43, Jesus says, come and see, and and Andrew says, come and see. It's, It's massively important to the kind of movement and DNA that was being formed for them, and it remains really central to what it means for us to grow spiritually and for us to be a healthy church. And so, to come and see gospel content today, I just want us to think about gospel content in a few different ways. And the first way I want us to think about it is as proposition. I know that sounds real exciting. Uh, a proposition is just an assertion. It's a declarative statement about something. And that's how the gospel comes to us. The gospel doesn't come to us as an idea or a suggestion. It comes as news, as an announcement. Let me show you what I mean. Look at uh, John 1 there. Well, we begin reading in verse 20, no, sorry, 35, um, and it starts with John the Baptist. He actually gets introduced in verse 19. John the Baptist is a wild man, but he's a preacher, and he's apparently a pretty good one. And he's gathering to himself a whole crew of disciples to the point that the religious leaders approach him and they say, are you, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And John the Baptist is adamant. No, 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 not at all. I'm not even worthy to think about that. He says, I'm just, I'm like a precursor. I'm a forerunner. I've just come to prepare the way and to announce the coming of the Messiah. And so he's standing there and he sees Jesus walking 
And in verse 29, he makes that announcement. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, that's a proposition. And then in verse 35, it happens again. It's the next day, and he's standing there, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. You see what John's doing? He's, he's making an announcement. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not everything that he could say or that we could say about Jesus, is it? It's one of the cool things about the gospel is that you can't exhaust the depth of it, but it's also simple enough that you can kind of get the gist of it in just one sentence, in a little nutshell. Probably the most famous nutshell is John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Paul has all kinds of little one-liners about the gospel. My favorite, I think, is probably in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Peter has nutshells. Peter says, Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's the gospel. And that's what John's doing here just giving us a little nutshell. Kendall gave you our nutshell. We say that the gospel is the good news, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in that little statement, we're saying this is, this is historical fact. We're talking about events that happened, the life of Jesus. He was a person. He had flesh and blood. He had a mom and a dad and siblings. He went to school. He had a job. He ministered to the very real, tangible needs of people around him. He died a physical death on a cross, just like common criminals died in that day. That was all normal. The abnormal thing was that he was raised from the dead. But even then, bodily, physically, historically. And we're saying that these historical things that happened have huge theological ramifications. These things happen because it is by these events and means that God is saving sinners. That's what John the Baptist is doing. He's announcing the good news that Jesus is here, that God's come into the world in flesh to take away the sins of the world. Everything that the disciples do in the rest of this text is a response to that proposition. It's a response to that announcement. So, come and see means that there's something that we need to look into, something external to us, a reality that we don't get to control or decide upon whether or not it's true. We just get to respond to it. John does not say, look within yourselves. He says, no, look at Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, hey, find your own way. He says, no, come and follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. All right, so how do we bring ourselves under this reality, under this great news? Well, we read the Bible. I know that sounds so simplistic, but that's what we're doing, right? We're, we're cutting through the noise. We're trying to just get to the heart of it. If you want to respond to the news, the good news, the way that you do that is you get yourself into the Scriptures, into the Word. And the reason I say that is because uh, God has revealed himself 
in Jesus and in his word. And his word is all about the person and work of Jesus. And so when you read the Old Testament, you're reading the story that prepares the way and points to the person and work of Jesus. And when you read the New Testament, you're reading the effects of and the commentary on and outworking of the person and the work of Jesus. And so to come and see, to put yourself under the teaching and the authority of Jesus is to put yourself in the Word of God. To be a gospel-centered church, to grow in your faith, means that we start by looking to Jesus, which means we look to the Scriptures. Uh, Augustine talked a lot about how we can know truth, and I'm going to just butcher this. So let me give you just my very uneducated paraphrase of his ideas. I think the way I would say it is this, is that we tend to think what we need is knowledge, and we need to figure stuff out. And once we kind of get enough knowledge and things make sense to us, then we can have faith. And Augustine says that actually isn't how knowledge works in any area of your life, and certainly not when it comes to God. How knowledge actually works is that you bring some, some element of faith or um, assumption to the table, which then helps you to understand. Augustine says we, ha- we believe in God, and it is our belief, it is our faith that helps us to gain greater understanding. Understanding starts with faith. Talking to a couple of guys recently in our church, uh, independently, but both basically said the same thing, and that was when they started coming here, they were, they were you know, entertaining Christianity, trying to understand Jesus, and it just didn't make sense to them. And the turning point for them both was that they decided to submit themselves to God's Word as truth and see where that took them. And all of a sudden, things came clear. All of a sudden, over time. They they began to understand in ways that they had never understood, the very same things that they were reading. Uh, I know you read Jimmy's story for the first part of my sermon while Kendall told you about it. My favorite line in Jimmy's story is this. That's the second paragraph down. He says, I think over the past few months I've been starting to grasp the importance of reading Scripture and that the Bible is the Word of God, like it's straight up God's Word. This is really hard for me, but I feel like my mind is starting to change toward the truth of the Bible. See how that works? If you want to get back to center, to the foundation, then you've got to submit yourself to this idea, this reality, that the Bible, the gospel, is the revealed will of God. You've got to get it deep in your soul that it is like straight up God's Word. Isn't that good news? In a world that just feels like we are floating and there's no no anchor, there is no bedrock, the good news of the gospel is that this is real and immovable. All right, most of you, I think, get that, the truth of the gospel. Uh, where we begin to go wrong is that we sort of see it as the, the entryway, as the thing that we sort of accept to get started in the Christian life, and then, then we're on our own. Then it's about, like, good Christian living. Uh, but the gospel's not just the beginning. It's the whole of the Christian life. It's the whole journey itself. And so the second thing I want us to consider is not just the proposition of the gospel, but the pursuit of it. We don't just look to Jesus. We can keep looking. We pursue him. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard John say this, Behold the Lamb of God. And so they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. All right, a come-and-see church gives people space to learn. One of the objections that I hear from people just like my neighbors and talking to people who uh, don't believe in Jesus is that Christianity seems kind of like for weak people. It feels to them like an impulse buy, like at some weak moment, uh, we just grabbed the religious Jesus off the shelf and like it gave us the fix we needed and now we're all in with him. But that's not the case. I mean, it's possible you could read the gospel accounts and you could come to a scene like where Jesus tells Peter and James and John, hey, follow me, and they throw down their nets and they follow him. And you're like, man, that is rash, isn't it? I mean, that's crazy. That was their whole livelihood and their family and like everything. Yeah, that would be nuts. That would be a total impulse buy if that was like their first encounter with Jesus. But it wasn't. That decision came after some time and some previous encounters. That's what's so great about this text is John's taking us back to these early encounters so we can see that things like that happened over time through a process of inquiry and thinking and discussion. Christianity is for thinking people, I think is what John wants us to see. This is how it began with them. They heard the announcement that John the Baptist had made, and they were curious. They wanted to know more. It wasn't enough, by the way, just to know what John the Baptist thought. They needed to know firsthand, because that's what real learning is. It's firsthand knowledge. And so they went straight to the source. When Jesus asked them, what do you want? They replied to him, rabbi, which means teacher. They wanted to learn. Later, they referred to him as Messiah, but not yet. As it is now, they're not quite sure who he is. And even when they discover that he's the Messiah, I don't think they are quite sure even what that means. And so there is process here. They just simply know enough to know that they want to know more. They want to investigate. They need more time with Jesus. And so they say, uh, where are you staying? Like, can we come hang out with you? And Jesus says, yeah, come and see. And so come and see means come and think. Study. Learn. Discuss. Find out for yourself firsthand what it means to follow Jesus. Some of you, I know, constantly feel uh, like you're not good enough. Constantly feel inadequate even just to, you know, pick this up and begin to read it, much less understand it. Some of you don't feel uh, good about your faith. You don't feel comfortable relating to God personally not ready to like dive into community or begin helping others. And all that is just because you don't feel good enough. And that's a part, part of a product of our culture. Our culture teaches that, you know, if you want to earn acceptance, you've got to like prove yourself. You need, to, you need to perform. It's not a come and see culture. Our culture is, you know, figure it out. Get your stuff together and then, and then come. Some of you have been telling yourself, yeah, I need to get my stuff together. Well, how long have you been saying that? Are you ever going to get your stuff together? What does that even mean? That's why you're never going to get it together because you don't even know what that means. Jesus is building a completely different kind of movement, an entirely different kind of culture. Jesus is saying, come and see. With all your flaws. I mean, so Peter's one of the guys that comes. You just, we get to get three years of just Peter's bloopers and blunders He had flaws. He was invited to come and see. Nathaniel, when he first hears the announcement from his friend, he's like, eh, Nazareth? Everybody I know from Nazareth is kind of a joke. I don't 
That's probably not the case. He gets to come and see with all his doubts. Clearly, they don't have their stuff together. Come and see. Jesus is so patient with us. He's not put off by our questions. He's not put off by what we don't know. He's patient. He says, come on. You don't have to pretend or perform anymore. You are free to just pursue. If you're a content person, that didn't resonate with you because you actually feel pretty good about yourself in this regard. You're like, yeah, I know stuff. And the danger of being a content person is you begin to measure yourself by what you know. But notice Jesus doesn't ask them when, when they approach him. He doesn't turn around and say, hey, what, what do you know? Like, what are your qualifications? He doesn't do that. The question he asks them is, what do you want? What are you seeking? That's not to say that truth can be whatever you want. It is to say that you're only going to find truth if that's really what you want. One of the reasons we drift from God, I think, is because we want other things. The reason I drift in a particular direction is because it turns out that's kind of the direction I want to go. I didn't just get here by accident. My desire took me there. And so if in your core what you really want is money, for whatever reason, security or power or whatever it is, then you will arrange your life in the pursuit of money. You'll take jobs that you don't like because they pay well. You'll move to cities you don't want to live in because there's more money to be had there. You'll overwork. You'll cheat. You'll hoard. You won't be generous. Whatever it is, your whole life will come under that pursuit. And you'll mix Jesus in there and call it blessing. See how that works? If what you really want is control, then your whole life will get arranged around having control. You won't take risks. You plan everything out methodically. Everything will have a classification and an order, and you won't let anything interrupt your plans. You'll throw Jesus in there, and you'll call it leadership. If you want approval, then you will arrange your whole life. Everything you think and say and do will be geared toward gaining this praise and the esteem of people in this room or people at work. You'll throw Jesus in there, and you'll call it community. If you want entertainment, your whole life will be arranged around that. You'll spend ungodly amounts of time with hobbies and uh, watching TV and whatnot. None of those things are wrong, but they're really bad gods. You'll throw Jesus in there and you'll call it rest. See, this is what Jesus is getting at. What do you guys want? You guys want power? Is that why you want me? You want me because you want power? You don't get it. What do you guys want? Have you ever considered that perhaps the reason you feel distant from God is because you don't actually want Him more than anything else? Pastor Ray Ortland uh, talks about a study that he read by two psychologists at Cornell, and they found that the desirability of an object influences its perceived distance. And so they did these two experiments. Uh, students who were fed pretzels and then a bottle of water was set down them. The ones that were fed pretzels perceived the bottle of water to be closer than it was. And the ones who weren't thirsty at all perceived the bottle of water to be further than it was. Similar experiment. They put a $100 bill on the table. And uh, they were, some, one group of students were told that they could win this $100 bill. And so they wanted to. And, it, and 
that $100 bill, they perceived it to be closer than it was. And some students were told that it belonged to the people con conducting the experiment, and so the $100 bill was perceived to be further than it was. All right, what does this study, study show? It shows that the perceived distance of something is affected by our desire for it. That what we want has a direct relationship with how distant things feel. See where I'm going? Could it be that God seems far away because you don't desire Him, because you desire something more than Him? What is essential to your happiness and to your sense of well-being? That's what you want. Ray Orland asks, have you killed your God desires with lesser desires? To use our examples, your money desires, your approval desires, your control desires, your entertainment desires, have all those things killed your God desires? And if so, what do you do? I mean, if you're in that place, you feel really stuck, right? Because how do you start to want something that you don't want? That's real hard to do. Jesus gives us this gracious first step. He just says, all right, come and see. They don't know what they want, and he says, but come and see. Because what you need, really, is a new heart. You need a new heart with new desires, and Jesus is saying, come, I can give that to you. So learners pursue the truth by pursuing Jesus. But it's more than that, they experience the truth. See, the gospel is not just proposition, it's, it's power. Peter comes to Jesus, his name is Cephas, actually, and Jesus changes his name on the spot there is a lot of power in doing that. We'll talk more about that next week. Nathaniel comes and Jesus is like, yep, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before you came here. I was like, what? See, there's power in these interactions. Because Jesus knows they don't just need information. They need to be transformed. They need to be changed by it. We tend to treat content as something that we can get a hold of. But the gospel is different. The gospel gets a hold of us. Uh, in Romans 6, and we talked about this, Paul says, look, the idea of autonomy is a myth. Everyone's a slave to something, either to sin or to righteousness. And only the gospel has the power to set us free from slavery to sin and make us slaves of righteousness. And some of you are saying, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like a slave to righteousness necessarily. And I get that. There's all kinds of realities, gospel realities about who we are, about what's happened to us that we don't feel, that haven't found expression in our mind and our heart yet. And we are children of God, but we don't always feel that, do we? Um, you know that God owns everything, and then He takes care of His kids, but you still put money above Him. We know that God's in control and that He works out all things for our good, but we still want control. We know that God accepts us unconditionally and even delights in us, but we still want the approval of others. We know that true joy is found in life with God and true rest is found in spending time with God, but we still look to entertainment for those things. See, it's not just a matter of knowing. It's a matter of, of, of it sinking in and changing us so that our experience of that truth is different and real. So how do we do that? We experience the power of the gospel by making specific applications of it to our lives. Let me give you just an example. 
None of you probably relate to this, but let's just talk about stress about the future, right? And it could be in any category. It could be related to a job or work, career. It could be stress about your kids. What in the world will they become? It could be stress about uh, if you're, you know, your future spouse. Stress about you know, what tomorrow is going to bring, whatever it is, all right? So when, when we talk about stress about the future, the primary feelings that we feel usually are anxiety and fear. And so we just kind of get stuck in that thing, and we don't know what to do with that. You may know some verses about those things, but it doesn't change the way you feel. And what needs to happen is, is we take the truth of those words, and we believe them in such a way that we can begin to apply them really specifically. The more specific, the better. And so in this case, we let the gospel confront us, just our way of thinking, because that's the first issue. So for instance, the gospel says, you're not your income. You're not your job. You're not your performance. Meaning your, your identity and your worth is not tied up in those things. You're not your kids. Your identity and worth as a parent is not in how your kids behave. Secondly, we let it conf- so we let it confront us, and then we let it convict us. Um, we have to begin to think, are we looking to these things to give us something that only God can give us? Am I looking to my job or my money or my kids or getting married? Am I looking for, to those things as the thing that will finally bring satisfaction to my soul? Because only God can give me that. I need, I need to feel conviction over that. That's the root of sin. There's another part of this application when we talk about conviction. Um, a lot of times we're in the situation we're in because of poor decisions we've made. And so, look, if my kids are doing wrong things, I'm not them, but I am their parent. And maybe I haven't parented them in ways that have set them up to do well. And so I need to be honest about that. I need to repent of poor parenting. If you've lost your job or you don't like your job, well, maybe there's attitudes or skill sets or something that you haven't developed that you need to be honest about and and repent of. So... Am I looking to God and not these things? And at the same time, am I being honest about these things and what, how I need to respond to them? In the place of conviction, the gospel brings comfort. And related to this in the future, the most comforting thing you can hear from the gospel is that God is your Father, knows absolutely what you need, and is so faithful to take care of His kids. He would not be found to be a dad who doesn't provide good things for his kids. And then finally, I think the gospel challenges us. The challenge here is to seek God above all else, to put your hope and your faith in Him and not only trust in, but begin to experience and see His provision for you. Now, it's not a formula. It's not like, oh, okay, that's how you do it? Good. I feel so much better now. Now, you probably still feel some, some stress, about your future when you think through that. It's a, it's, a, it's a discipline more than a formula, meaning I have to rehearse this. I have to tell myself these things all the time. I have to continue to make those applications, and I have to begin to act in faith on those truths so that I can see that as I step out, based on these truths and these realities, that God picks up in every step of the way. It's a lifestyle, this believing and applying the gospel. Are you experiencing the gospel? Does it, does it get a hold of you? Well, you can start 
just by looking to the scriptures and saying, okay, Jesus, I want to see you as you are. I want to experience this stuff for real. And just opening yourself up with that expectation. All right, here's the last thing. I realize that all I've been telling you to do is read the Bible. Because when it comes down to it, it would, like sometimes I sit around the office, I think, okay, what is this? What do I just wish they would do? The Bible is always like at the top of the list. I want you to read the Bible for your own good because I want you to experience these things. I want you to be submitted to the objective reality of God's revelation. I want you to pursue the truth of the gospel above all other things because they don't satisfy. I want you to experience the power of God in your life because all of these other things that promise power just don't have it. But more than any of that, I want you to know the presence of God. The presence of God is in His Word. God's Word is God Himself. And wherever the Word is, God is. And wherever God is, the Word is. Paul says in in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, He says in Romans that uh, Jesus is present with us in His Word. He's not far away. We don't have to go up to the heavens to get Him. We don't have to go down to the sea and bring Him up. We find Him. He's near to us in His Word. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would teach us and remind us the Word and help us to apply it in our lives. And so when you open up to the Scriptures, the presence of the triune God is with you. You're with God when you're with His Word. So come and see means come and see Jesus. All our learning leads us to Jesus. One of the low points in my life spiritually uh, was when I was on staff with Camps Crusade a few, number of years ago. You know, doing ministry, leading Bible studies, all good things, but just internally felt really dry spiritually. God felt very distant. And what I began to realize um, was that I, I was thinking about Jesus as some aspect of who he was, as, as knowledge or power to help me do the things that I needed to do. And uh, someone challenged me to begin to think of him as a person, which sounds obvious. But to think of him as like, you know, like a funny, smart, winsome, capable, like a person I would want to be friends with, a person that I would want to be like. And when I began to think about him, not just as some aspect of who he was, but as a person, I began to pursue a relationship with him rather than just trying to use him for my stuff. At the time, I was leading a Bible study with some fraternity guys. And uh, one of the guys was taking a religious studies course at UT, and his, his approach to the whole thing was like rigidly academic, and he was just bothering me. Just like every week, it was like, you know, these sort of academic critiques. And finally, one week, I said, hey, man, I feel like you're reading this as a textbook more than the, like, living Word of God. That's a little bit of awkward silence in the room. A couple weeks later, he came back to the study, repentant. He said, man, I've totally missed it. I've totally been reading this thing and missing the point of it, which is Jesus. We used to argue a lot in that Bible study because it was, it was the way that I was trying to get them to, like, really learn. And so I, we were doing Sermon on the Mount, which is really tough. And I would make it tougher by, like, posing all these really hard questions, and then I wouldn't give them the answers. And, like, literally they threatened physical violence. They cussed at me. They wanted me to give them the answers because for them, they felt like if I knew the answers, then I would feel good about myself. I feel like I'm doing well. 
But that's not what I was trying to do. I was trying to get them to relate to Jesus personally. You know, it's like the difference between me telling a guy all about this girl that he would really like and him discovering that girl through relational pursuit. He would obviously make a ton of mistakes if he pursued her relationally, but his attraction to her would lead to far greater knowledge than what I could ever tell him about her. You know that knowing a lot about somebody without knowing them personally is called stalking. (laughs) And that's what the guys in my Bible study were doing. They wanted to stalk Jesus. And I wanted them to pursue him. And so I made it hard. After that guy came back and confessed to the group, uh, um, expressed his desire, I didn't realize this till later, but they started meeting the morning after the Bible studies at 7 a.m. at Starbucks. For fraternity guys to read the Bible at all is one thing, but to do it at 7 a.m. without being forced to is a whole different thing. And when I found out about it, I was like, why are you guys doing that? And they're like, well, we just decided we've got, to, we've got to figure this out. We've got to understand what Jesus is talking about and how to apply it to our lives. This is literally what they said. And they were learning and applying things that I didn't teach them. And you know why? They'd met Jesus. Who has the capacity through his word and by his spirit to teach them directly. That's the content of the gospel. So you know what? How you're doing, how we're doing, it doesn't matter. All that matters right now is how we respond to this gracious invitation from Jesus to come and see. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.